Hey there, OrthoBullets podcast listeners. Today's episode of the OrthoBullets podcast is sponsored by Bullet Cards, which are now live on orthobullets.com and coming soon to the Bullets app. What are Bullet Cards, you ask? Well, they are basically modern flashcards backed by a powerful spaced repetition algorithm so you can learn more efficiently with the tried-and-true method, now modernized with AI. You can use our peer-reviewed pre-made flashcards to review critical information or make your own personal flashcards efficiently by creating a question and populating the back of the card with information from our trusted OrthoBullets review topics. Bullet cards are absolutely free, so there's literally nothing to lose and everything to gain. Click the links in our show notes to test out some high-yield bullet card decks and to learn more about how to get started with them. Without further ado, let's get into today's episode of the OrthoBullets podcast. This episode of the OrthoBullets podcast will go over the topic of adhesive capsulitis or frozen shoulder from the shoulder and elbow section on orthobullets.com. Let's start this episode with a quick summary. Adhesive capsulitis, also known as frozen shoulder, is a condition of the shoulder characterized by functional loss of both passive and active shoulder motion commonly associated with diabetes and thyroid disease. Diagnosis is made clinically with marked reduction of both active and passive range of motion of the shoulder. Treatment is a prolonged course of aggressive physical therapy and medical management of underlying disease if present, for example diabetes or a thyroid disorder. Manipulation under anesthesia or arthroscopic capsular release is indicated in patients with progressive loss of motion having failed a prolonged course of physical therapy. Now, let's get into the episode. With respect to epidemiology, as far as demographics of adhesive capsulitis or frozen shoulder, this is more common among women aged 40 to 60 years old. With respect to pathophysiology, the mechanism of injury could be a primary or idiopathic form, post-traumatic following proximal humerus fracture or immobilization for other upper extremity injury, or post-surgical following rotator cuff repair or axillary dissection for malignancy. The pathoanatomy involves an inflammatory process causing fibroblastic proliferation of the joint capsule leading to thickening, fibrosis, and adherence of the capsule to itself and the humerus. The pathoanatomy also involves fibroblasts slash myofibroblasts with abundant type 3 collagen present, and this leads to mechanical block to motion, and know that the essential lesion involves the coracohumeral ligament and the rotator interval capsule. Associated conditions with adhesive capsulitis includes diabetes, both types, thyroid disorders of autoimmune etiology, Dupuytren's disease, atherosclerotic disease, and cervical disc disease. So in terms of diabetes, stiffness may be the first manifestation of diabetes and warrants further workup. Know that there's worse outcomes for these patients regardless of treatment, and there's also an increased risk with older age, increased duration of diabetes mellitus, autonomic neuropathy, and history of MI. Now, let's go over some relevant anatomy. We'll go over the capsule ligamentous structures and the rotator interval. So the function of the capsular ligamentous structures is to contribute to stability of the glenohumeral joint and act as check reins at extremes of motion in their non-pathologic state. The glenohumeral ligaments include the superior glenohumeral ligament, or the SGHL, the middle glenohumeral ligament, or the MGHL, and the inferior glenohumeral ligament, or IGHL complex, with the following components, the anterior band, the axillary fold, and the posterior band. The rotator interval is a triangular region between the anterior border of the supraspinatus and the superior border of the subscapularis. This contains the SGHL and the coracohumeral ligament. Now, let's go over the classification of adhesive capsulitis and the ones to know include the clinical stages and the arthroscopic stages. The clinical stages include freezing slash painful, frozen slash stiff, and thawing. So the freezing slash painful stage is characterized with gradual onset of diffuse pain that is six weeks to nine months. 
the frozen slash stiff stage is characterized with decreased range of motion affecting activities of daily living, that is four to nine months or more, and the thawing stage is characterized with gradual return of motion from five to 26 months. Moving on to the arthroscopic stages, this is divided into four stages. Stage one is characterized with patchy fibrinous synovitis. Stage two is characterized with capsular contraction and fibrinous adhesions. Stage three is characterized with increasing contraction and synovitis resolving. And stage four is characterized with severe contraction. Moving on to the presentation, as far as common symptoms of adhesive capsulitis, there's often insidious onset of general shoulder pain preceding any noticeable loss of motion. There is variable character and severity of pain, and know that loss of motion is dependent on the stage of disease at presentation. Freezing is characterized with insidious onset of pain at rest and with movement, as well as difficulty sleeping. The frozen stage is characterized with pain that lessens, but significant motion limitations affecting activities of daily living. And finally, the thawing phase is characterized with pain that is gone and motion that improves, but is less than normal. On physical exam, inspection should note any muscle atrophy or scars denoting prior surgery. Motion assessment may reveal symmetric loss of active and passive range of motion. Be sure to document all motion planes and compare to the contralateral side. Know that limitations in motion may be slight. External rotation deficit is the most common finding. There may be a tethered endpoint to motion. And finally, know that there may be pain throughout the motion arc or at terminal motion depending on the stage of disease. As far as provocative tests, know that impingement, biceps, and slap maneuvers are often positive, and know that rotator cuff testing may be limited given loss of motion. As far as studies to obtain in the workup of adhesive capsulitis, you should obtain a metabolic panel and endocrine labs such as TSH and a hemoglobin A1C. Moving on to imaging, recommended views on radiographs should include an AP in neutral rotation, a scapular Y, and an axillary lateral. Alternate views include an AP in internal and external rotation. Findings can include disuse osteopenia, and this must be obtained to evaluate for osteoarthritis, posterior dislocation, or surgical hardware. Finally, MRI plus or minus arthrography is not necessary for diagnosis, but can evaluate for other pathology. In terms of findings, loss of axillary recess indicates contracture of the joint capsule. Moving on to treatment of adhesive capsulitis, this can be non-operative or operative. Non-operative management includes physical therapy, NSAIDs, and or intraarticular steroid injections, heat, and or cryotherapy. This is indicated as the first line of treatment and is often effective. The physical therapy program often involves gentle, pain-free stretching and moist heat and should be supervised and last for three to six months. Distension arthrography is another non-operative modality but is rarely performed. Operative options include manipulation under anesthesia as well as arthroscopic or open capsular release. Manipulation under anesthesia is indicated when there's failure to improve with non-operative modalities. In terms of contraindications, this option is controversial if done during the freezing slash inflammatory phase. It is relatively contraindicated in diabetics as there's a 50% failure rate, and it's also contraindicated following rotator cuff or labral repair. Arthroscopic or open capsular release is indicated after extensive therapy has failed, which is defined as three months. Know that arthroscopy will spare the subscapularis tendon with the advantage of releasing the intraarticular and subacromial adhesions. Now, let's go over some of these management techniques in a bit more detail. So in terms of physical therapy, this involves daily progressive stretching exercise to the point of pain, supervised or home-based programs, and know that these are successful for an overwhelming majority. Moving on to manipulation under anesthesia, be sure to assess and document pre-procedure range of motion. In terms of anesthesia, complete muscle paralysis is required. Note that an indwelling catheter for regional anesthesia is often used to aid in therapy. 
In terms of manipulation, steady force should be applied after full muscle paralysis is achieved. Postoperatively, an early physical therapy program is initiated. Complications include fracture, dislocation, rotator cuff as well as liberal tears, and brachial plexus palsies. Finally, moving on to arthroscopic capsular release, be sure to assess and document pre-procedure range of motion. In terms of anesthesia, again, indwelling catheter for regional anesthesia is often used to aid in therapy. The approach for an arthroscopic capsular release includes a standard skin incision with portal placement slightly higher than normal, given the contracted and thickened capsule. In terms of the release, intraarticular structures may be obscured by adhesions and contractures. The rotator interval is released from the anterior biceps tendon to the superior edge of the subscapularis. The corcohumeral ligament can then be visualized and released. Posterior capsular release will increase internal rotation and cross-body adduction. Finally, subacromial bursectomy and adhesions are released as needed, and remember that no acromioplasty is done. In terms of manipulation, manipulation under anesthesia may be done before or after release to increase range of motion. Postoperatively, know that an early physical therapy program is initiated. Complications of adhesive capsulitis include residual stiffness. Another potential complication is axillary nerve injury with capsular release. Therefore, be sure to perform an inferior release near to the glenoid rim. Finally, another potential complication is proximal humerus fracture, dislocation, rotator cuff tears, or brachial plexopathy. And these can be seen following overzealous manipulation with osteoporotic bone. Finally, let's end this review session talking about prognosis. Know that adhesive capsulitis is a self-limited disease. However, there are worse outcomes among diabetics. Okay, so now that we've gone over the major points about this topic, let's go over a few questions to apply the information and get a sense of how this topic has been tested on past exams. First question. A 54-year-old female presents to your office for evaluation of right shoulder pain and decreased function. She has a past medical history significant for hypertension, hypercholesterolemia, and type 2 diabetes. On physical examination of the right shoulder, her active and passive motion is equivalent with a forward elevation of 140 degrees, abduction of 120 degrees, and external rotation in adduction to 20 degrees. There is no weakness on strength testing of the rotator cuff. She has negative results for the abdominal compression test, hornblower test, and external rotation lag sign. The motion of the left shoulder is full. MRI of the right shoulder demonstrates a 2mm articular-sided supraspinatus tear. At this point, she has failed conservative measures, and you recommend arthroscopic surgery, including which of the following. And the choices are 1. Supraspinatus tear completion and repair. 2. Rotator interval release. 3. Capsular placation. 4. Subacromial decompression. And 5. Distal clavicle resection. The correct answer to this question is 2. Rotator interval release. So this patient has adhesive capsulitis and has failed conservative measures. The next step in treatment should be a circumferential arthroscopic capsular release and manipulation under anesthesia. To quickly review, adhesive capsulitis is characterized by functional loss of both passive and active shoulder range of motion. This occurs most commonly in middle-aged women and has a high association with hypothyroidism and diabetes. Treatment typically consists of physical therapy with a focus on stretching, however manipulation under anesthesia or arthroscopic capsular release may be needed for recalcitrant cases that is defined as greater than 3 to 6 months. Diabetics have a 50% failure rate following manipulation under anesthesia, and therefore this is not a recommended treatment. The rotator interval, which is a triangular region between the anterior border of the supraspinatus and the superior border of the subscapularis, is a common source of restricted tissue and must be released during the circumferential arthroscopic capsular release. 
Naviezer et al. review the diagnosis and treatment of adhesive capsulitis. They report that other shoulder pathology may also produce similar symptoms, however, adhesive capsulitis must always be considered. They conclude that while most cases are self-limiting, continued functional deficits after greater than six months of physical therapy warrant discussion about operative intervention. Naviezer et al. also reviewed the current treatment options for adhesive capsulitis. They report the importance of diagnosis and history, with adhesive capsulitis being characterized as a painful, gradual loss of both passive and active range of motion. They conclude that variable nomenclature, inconsistent staging, and various treatment options have likely led to confusing and contradictory recommendations in the literature. To quickly go over the incorrect answers, answer 1, supraspinatus tear completion and repair is incorrect, as partial articular-sided tears of 6 mm or 50% may be treated with completion and repair. However, this patient's primary issue is adhesive capsulitis and not rotator cuff pathology. Answer 3, capsular plication, is a tightening of the capsule and is commonly done for instability, not adhesive capsulitis. Answer 4, subacromial decompression is incorrect, as subacromial bursectomy is typically performed for adhesive capsulitis, but an acromioplasty is not. And finally, answer 5, distal clavicle resection, is performed for symptomatic AC joint arthritis, not adhesive capsulitis. And moving on to the final question, which of the following structures is not released with an arthroscopic release for adhesive capsulitis? And the choices are 1, superior glenohumeral ligament, 2, middle glenohumeral ligament, 3, inferior glenohumeral ligament, 4, coracohumeral ligament, and 5, coracoacromial ligament. The correct answer to this question is 5, coracoacromial ligament. So the coracoacromial ligament is not released during arthroscopic release for adhesive capsulitis. Instead, this is used as a landmark for complete release of the rotator interval. To quickly review, adhesive capsulitis is characterized by functional loss of both passive and active shoulder range of motion. This occurs most commonly in middle-aged women and has a high association with hypothyroidism and diabetes. Treatment typically consists of physical therapy with a focus on stretching. However, manipulation under anesthesia or arthroscopic capsular release may be needed for recalcitrant cases, which are defined as lasting greater than three to six months. The rotator interval, which is a triangular region between the anterior border of the supraspinatus and the superior border of the subscapularis, is a common source of restricted tissue and must be released during arthroscopic capsular release. The SGHL and coracohumeral ligaments are both structures within the rotator interval. The coracoacromial ligament is used as a superficial landmark for a complete interval release. Tetro et al. review arthroscopic release of the rotator interval and coracohumeral ligament in a cadaveric model. They report that arthroscopic release from the supraspinatus to the subscapularis resulted in complete resection of the coracohumeral ligament in all specimens without injury to the biceps tendon, supraspinatus, subscapularis, or conjoint tendons. They conclude that arthroscopic rotator interval release leads to complete release of the coracohumeral ligament if the dissection is taken superficially to the level of the coracoacromial ligament. To quickly go over the incorrect answers, answer 1, superior glenohumeral ligament, 2, middle glenohumeral ligament, 3, inferior glenohumeral ligament, and 4, coracohumeral ligament are all incorrect as all of these structures are released when performing an arthroscopic release for adhesive capsulitis, and therefore answer 5, coracoacromial ligament, which is not released, is the correct answer in this question asking which structure is not released with an arthroscopic release for adhesive capsulitis. That's all for this review about adhesive capsulitis or frozen shoulder. Hopefully that was helpful. This is the OrthoBullets podcast, a daily audio review session by OrthoBullets, the free learning and collaboration community for orthopedic surgery education. 
Keep in mind that these podcasts are designed to go along with the topics on orthobullets.com. And in fact, you can listen to these episodes right on the OrthoBullets website or mobile app while going through the topic. If you've gotten any value from the OrthoBullets podcast so far, please consider leaving us a five-star rating and writing us a review on Apple Podcasts. It will help us spread the word and increase our discoverability tremendously. Also, if you aren't already, be sure to follow OrthoBullets on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn, and YouTube for daily high-yield content. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you all tomorrow right here on the OrthoBullets podcast.